from Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges, where we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, let's get into it. Our purpose? To do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage, and the rest of us? Well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations, and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to Etch the Edges. I'm your host, D.S. Brown, and today our special guest is Tony Sellers. Tony hails from Gwinnett County, and he's decided to do something that is incredibly important. And I think a lot of you out there recognize just how important it is. I think we all can agree that this year's election is gonna go straight through education, straight through your county's board of education. And here where we happen to live, Gwinnett County, our firm belief based upon what we have seen is that the destiny of an entire country, what the Senate's going to look like, what Congress is going to look like, if not what our local election boards will look like, will run straight through our county. So with that being said, we want to get Tony's perspective and give him the opportunity to edge the edges on all the things that are so important that are taking place in boards of education all over the country. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Derek. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. So like I said, you, you, you decided to step up and step out into this political thing. Let's, uh, let's get a little of edging done on who Tony Sellers is, where he comes from. You know, tell us what you're about. Okay, so I'm a 25-year resident of Gwinnett County. Uh, I live in District 4. That's the seat I'm running for. Uh, I'm a former teacher in Gwinnett County Public Schools. Uh, I taught there for 18 years, and the board itself has always been an issue, and I've worked previously on getting some of the other candidates elected, and so now that I have the opportunity, uh, started to step in and decided to uh, look at this seat because it was open, and I thought it was important that we preserve the Democrat edge on the board simply because, as you alluded to a little bit ago, the Gwinnett County School Board and Gwinnett County itself has become instrumental in Georgia, which is also a swing state. So what happens here locally has impact on what's happening across the state and indeed in the nation. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, first off, allow me to say, Thank you for stepping up and stepping out. Um, I'm I've, I'll say it like this. I have yet 
to interview anyone running for office where I can't say thank you for just stepping up and stepping out because despite how folks may feel about politics in general and politicians, I love saying I'm not fond of politicians because I'm not. I, I like states women and states men, people who decide to go out there and do the work of the public and do it for the public good. The bottom line is the job is thankless. The job is thankless, literally. I mean, you know, this is hard stuff. And, and folks, you can't see Tony's face, of course, because we're on a podcast, but I said that and the man is still smiling. So yeah. <laughs> we got to give him some credit. This is some hard stuff you're stepping into, right? It is. And uh, <clears throat> most people, if you've devoted your life, I mean, I've done a lot of different things. I started out, and we spoke about this a little while ago, about uh, it, after I got out of grad school, I worked in the corporate world. So I've worked in a lot of different jobs. I worked at Bell South when I first came out, the uh, local telecommunications company. Uh, I worked at a company called Mitsubishi Wireless, where we did cell phones, uh, Nortel Networks, which was a big networking company. So I came into education mid-career. So seeing that and seeing education, uh, they're difficult jobs. The political job is a step above that, I suppose, because you're putting yourself out there. You're allowing people to look at your position and what you've done. You open yourself up for criticism, not to mention the nuts and bolts aspect, really, of just starting a campaign. I mean, I have the background of being organized, organizational skills, those types of things. I got an undergraduate degree in political science, so I'm not you know, a stranger to these types of things, the, the, the basics of uh, American politics. But it is a tough job. If you ask most people, that's why, you know, all the teachers, I'm getting a lot of support from them because they're like probably thinking better you than me because of the difficulty of the job. Absolutely. Yeah. The job simply isn't easy. And of course, given the time and the era, what's happening in Gwinnett County, that just makes the job exponentially harder. So let's lean in a little bit. You know you're going to be going into, or, or let me say it differently. So folks, um, I was going to ask one question. I'm switching. Um, I was at the Board of Education meeting last week, and Tony was there, which, of course, he, he, he needs to be, not just because he's a um, concerned citizen, but because he's running. And I will just tell you, folks, I noticed that this Board of Education you know, they've been going through training. They've taken a lot of heat. Some folks on the board have taken all kinds of incredible heat and, and, and painful statements and, and no small amount of fear. But despite all of that, they were running together like a machine, in my opinion. Just a, a few missteps in parliamentary procedure. And to really have a problem with that, you've got to be a parliamentarian geek of some kind to say you have issue with that. So let me make it clear, I'm a geek because I love geeky stuff, but I'm not that kind of geek. So I thought they did really, really well in terms of meeting execution. What you could see is that they were gelling together, despite the fact that the community is, you know, there's a portion of, of the community that's still throwing a lot, of, a lot of heat their way. And so I throw all of that out there to say, as we were watching things proceed, this is the kind of environment that Tony would be leaping into. And when you go into that, 
Tony, you know, um, with some of the, because we, we heard what some of the folks said during the, the public portion of the meeting. And I don't expect that to abate in, in any degree as things proceed. Um, how, how does that make you feel? Because again, you're, you're, you're going into what seems to be, look, we, we are, we are on different sides of the ideological divide, but the board looked like they etched some of those edges off, right? And they started to run together, even if they may have differing perspectives. And that's what it's all about. The solution is somewhere in the mid, as we walk through the crucible of conflict, we get to figure things out and try to craft policy that works for the majority of folks in the county. But we still got folks that are throwing hate. There's a, that's part of, political conflict, but in the last year or so with the board, it's gotten to another level of heat. So when, as a part, you, you're alluding to, why would you want to do this? <laughs> and uh, the, the answer is, it needs to be done. Uh, does it worry me? Sure. You can see conflict in the community. But for me, the idea is bringing people back together in some way, because I think everybody, if we can see that we have common interests in Gwinnett County, Gwinnett County is uh, unique in the country in the, in the 80s and 90s, and even into the 2000s. It was one of the top growing counties in the country for 10 or 12 years. It was the fastest growing county in the country. And you have the issue of the statistics of Atlanta, where you have all the almost all of the new people coming to Atlanta are non-white. So you have sort of sort of a, a reverse great migration where people are coming back to Atlanta. I, I saw an interview with Morgan Freeman on television. It must have been a year or more ago. And they asked him, why do you live in Mississippi part time? And he said, well, that's where my family is. Yeah. I go back there and these national pundits can't understand that. They can't understand the draw of family, the draw of tradition, the draw of wanting to be in your community with your, with, as my family would say, with your people. Yeah. My people live here. They have that phrase that you hear here in the South. So if we can get back to that community and people working together, <clears throat> I think there's an undercurrent of people. There's fear because the board looks different. They believe that somehow their interests won't be listened to. I really don't know what's going on with some of the people because some of the people say some things and this is not new. I have a friend who uh, is working with me on my, my campaign and her husband used to listen to the Tecab County School Board 20 years ago. He would watch it on the public access channel on cable and he goes, Man, that's good TV, I'll tell you, because you could see the conflict. Yeah. And he was into that. He was a political junkie like most of us. If you teach social studies like I did, you know, your your people, you're interested in that type of thing. So conflict's part of the game. It's just gotten very much more heated lately. And that's because Gwinnett has had a solid base of people who've kind of been in charge for many, many years. That's right. And that's changing. So we have people who want to come and whether it's uh you know a power-based thing whether it's a race-based thing i don't know what's inside people's hearts but when i look at them and hear what they're saying it sounds like a lot there's anger there 
but there's a, there seems to be a lot of fear too, fear of, of change and things might be different and that they might not have the same interests listened to perhaps, but is it a tough job? Yeah. I have a lot of respect for the people who are on there. And uh, years ago, four or five years ago, I worked uh, for Everton Blair, whose seat I'm running for. And, you know, he was the first African-American on the school board. Uh, young guy, lots of ideas, faces, uh, and then the board has changed. So some people are afraid of change. But as, as a state, Georgia is changing. If you look at what Stacey Abrams has done, registering people to vote, we should celebrate that because, you know, we want people to vote. Get out there. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Go get registered and vote. I had kids in my classes say, Mr. Sellers, it doesn't matter. I, they, it doesn't matter if I vote. Why should I vote? And, and you have to explain them to them. That's what the opposition wants you to think. They want you to not vote. They want you to think my vote doesn't matter. And if I don't vote, it's not going to be that big a deal. I'm, I'm 18. Why should I care? And I would tell them that. And sometimes they would go vote, which is a, a good thing because we want that participation out there. The participation at the school board meeting, sometimes it can get to be almost like a scrum. You know, the people yeah. come up there and they have things to say and they've even had to change the they're, they're so enthusiastic here. If you can call it that, they've had to change the rules to allow people only three minutes to talk. And we had at the board meeting over 30 people wanting to make public comment. To me, that's a great thing. But I, as I watch them up on the board, it's kind of hard to sit and listen because some of it can get rough. It can it can get really rough. And like I say, I've been to a few of them. Tony, you and I were both clearly near the front there. Like you said, you can see the faces. And uh, the best way I can say it is all of them to a person try to maintain their look of granite, stoicism. But with some of the stuff that was coming out of some of the commenters' mouths, you would see it crack every once in a while. Or a head would move to the left and the right as someone would say, would think perhaps, are they talking about me? And of course the commentator was talking about them. And it's just, it's that's where we are. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing, but they did maintain. They did maintain. But I have to agree with you. Everything that you said there, Tony, you know, the, uh, the vitriol definitely has, has gotten to a new level. And I totally agree. It is born completely of fear. It's born completely of fear. And it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's just taking a different tack. You know, it's been mobilized thanks to our technology. It rises to a different level in terms of how our echo chambers have been magnified, our inability to think critically, our propensity to internalize misinformation and disinformation and magnify that, um, you know, alternative facts, bending the truth because my opinion is now the truth and the truth from my opinion must become the fact. All of these things are at play. And to your point, it's all born of fear. I've been in Gwinnett County for over 20 years now. And like you said, the change is happening for all the reasons you've called out. And it's been a good thing. I live in Sewanee. And I love telling folks how when I go to Sewanee uh, Town Center or when I go to the Mall of Georgia, I like to think and I firmly believe that this county points the way for an entire nation in terms of diversity, 
how we engage, how we manage to try to close the divides between us is an example. And unfortunately, there's a small contingent of people that are doing things of fear for party against what looks like would be best for us because the children point the way. I say it all the time. The children point the way and their parents who agree to it point the way. What do I mean? I tell folks all the time, I'm going to town center and she likes him and he likes her and he's hanging out with her and he's hanging out with him and she's hanging out with him. Well, Derek, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you something. That person is black. That person is white. That person is Asian. That person is Indian American. And they all seem to be loving on each other together, regardless of what the outer surface looks like. And they lean in hard to each other. So for some folks to bring up all of this vitriol and divisiveness, I can only say in times to come, Thanksgiving's going to be difficult. I say it all the time. Thanksgiving's going to be difficult because five or six years ago, your daughter's husband, you looked at him like he was going to become the criminal thug that's going to rob you on the corner when he works for a financial institution, sits in a corner, loves your grandkids, and he just really wants to take care of you as you turn into an old stodger, codger. You know, <laughs> think about what the world can and should look like. This fear wants to keep certain people relegated to certain sectors of the economy, certain sectors of society, kind of wants to redline them. And that fear becomes this, this palpable thing when you think that if they take the reins of power, like you said, I'm going to lose something. I'm going to lose something. That's what they really think. And the story is told to them because it magnifies power, it preserves power. It allows certain people to say, I'm going to maintain this. And that person there, I don't necessarily know if they're ignorant, um, as highly educated as Everton is. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a concern in my system that he will not speak or act for me. And that's just not where we need to go. And the folks who decide to step up need to embrace that. Sounds like that's what you're doing. And I think that there are people who are out there in public life who are more professionalized as politicians. Yeah. And there are those who are from the inside. And I've said this over and over again, that people who are political or strongly political oftentimes don't want to be seen as an insider. But I'm an insider. I know what goes on inside Gwinnett County Public Schools. I've experienced it as a teacher. I've watched the board. I can see the policies. Uh, I know how they need to change for my students. So as you were saying a little while ago, the, the idea of division and everything, I kind of uh, I joke around or I used to joke around with the students in class because you know they would say, you wouldn't think his class was fun because it was e economics. And they'll go, but it is because we don't just do economics. We talked about political things and the connection to the economy and why these things happen. And the political aspect of it is that I would say to them, especially during springtime, go get registered to vote because you can vote. And I would echo Star Wars and I'd say, young people, you're our only hope, you know? <laughs> so I try to tell them that. I tell that to my own children. When we see all of these things where people are trying to either preserve their power or do nothing for things like... Uh, if you're looking at climate change and other things, the young people are scared because they look at what's going on and they feel like they're on the train, but they don't have any, any choice about the destination. 
they're they're here they're going they're moving along but, but they don't realize the power because the people who are younger either the millennials and younger they're bigger than the baby boom that's right and if they would all get out and do what they need to do they could change everything very rapidly and i think that's what stacy abrams and some of the others and you alluded to Gwinnett County changing and being a bellwether for the rest of the country. I really believe that. And if we get enough participation, things will change. So on the board, the school board needs to do things, I suppose, to reconnect with the community and the needs of the students as it is now. Because many of my colleagues, when I taught in social studies, we would talk about what are the needs of the students right now? And are all the policies that we do, is that good for the students? I had a, a college professor and it was in a cross-listed management class. So I was in there with the MBA people and others. And he started talking about the fact that at the beginning of his career, he was a teacher at, in a high school or a substitute teacher. And his mentor said to him, any policy that we implement or anything that we do, there's something that we need to remember and you'll never go wrong. And he said that phrase is love the child. If you love the child and you look at them as what can I do that's going to benefit you, everything's going to be okay. I think that a lot of what we've done in, let's say, the past 15 or 20 years, as Gwinnett has grown, it's been for a lot of other reasons, is it? good for the business community? Is it good for growth? Is it good for the reputation of Gwinnett County Public Schools? Because coming from the, the corporate side, like I did, I can see how they get really, really far onto the side that I call the sales presentation side. They're going to stack the deck. They're going to talk about the numbers. They're going to talk about how good it is to be in Gwinnett. Come move here, grow the real estate business, grow the businesses here. That's fine. It's a good thing. We like that. People want jobs. But when you look at the, the school system, we've kind of lost track of that because when the kids ask me, Mr. Sellers, do they really care about us? They treat me like a number. All they care about is my test score. And these kids are seniors, so they've been there for 12 or 13 years. And they're starting at that time because they're about to leave. They're questioning, what happened to me in this school career? And could it have been better? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tony, I, uh, uh, and that's a good segue into the, the equity question. I want to talk about that for a minute, right? Um, I've had conversations with teachers over the years, more so recently. Uh, of course, I'm married to a teacher. The, 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 what happens in the classroom and in the schools is critically important to consider, right? I have access to and, and have seen how the schools on the northern side of the county operate, the, um, the community uplift that those students receive, the, the safety net, which is more like, um, I would call it something different. I would call it a, a, an, an expansive and gracious entitlement net, even though entitlement has a negative connotation. I would add that to it because what happens in the school over here on this side of town is mimicked by what happens outside of school. And despite uh, the rigors of, of systemic testing, despite the layers that get added on to try and maintain this Gwinnett standard, the, the, there's money 
let's just say it like that, there's money and community to build a much more lasting and powerful holistic experience for these students. And when I hear people at the Board of Education come and they speak during the public time frame, and they lament what they think we're losing because of this push for equity, it becomes real clear to me that they don't have insight at all into the schools where you taught. Bergmar is an outstanding school that gets that does not get the press it deserves. It hasn't. And I think it will going forward. I happen to know the principal quite well. And they are trying to do the innovative things to help lift things up and, and close that gap. But a lot of folks think that by doing that, they're going to lose something up here. And I think conversations and dialogue and that leaning into discomfort and that conflict has to happen to show them otherwise. There's no lever that is not way outside the extreme that you sitting on the board that you could pull that would destroy what's happening and growing at North Gwinnett High School. However, at Bergmar, to your point, and again, they keep seeming to miss this. You've got stats that show disciplinary measures, punishment, uh, a lack of, and again, it goes back to the, the equity. I've spoken to teachers who used to be students, and some of them, one in particular who I won't name, graduated from Peachtree Ridge, I believe, and she said, I wish I had gone to Bergmar because my experience would have been different because of my ethnicity. Uh, as my listeners know, there's no such thing as race. I won't say I don't believe in race. There's, there's no such thing as it. Beyond the categorization we've created as a socioeconomic tool for statistics. And to that point, I guess, unfortunately, until we straighten things out, we still need to track it. But you know, you're no more white than I am black, except by the nomenclature we allow. Um, okay, done with that. But my point being, this teacher said at Bergmar there were there are all these extra things, not to mention the culture itself, that would have benefited me as a person of color that I didn't necessarily get 15 years ago when I graduated from Peace Ridge. Not even to mention the fact that there's this strong, painful lament from these folks who say, I don't want my child to be ashamed because of who they are. And they don't seem to be critical thinkers in terms of the perspective and internalizing what the other person may feel. My child attended North Gwinnett Middle. My child has had the experience of, you know, um, the word nigger being bandied about and directed at her. My child has known the shame that should not be shame of, I'm going to wear my hair as a beautiful young black girl in a manner that represents my ethnicity only to be told by who she really thought was some of her friends, ew, what's wrong with your hair? What did you do? It looks ugly. That's, wow. Okay, th th this is who she is and she's being made to feel ashamed of herself. And I use the word ashamed because that's how my child came home. And for me to have to sit through a meeting and listen to these people go, I don't want my child to come home crying, talking about did my ancestors do any of this and I feel bad about it. And that social emotional learning or critical race theory, or just the tools of equity so that you know we can learn to 
have empathy for one another, if these things aren't important, I could fall into a space of losing myself, right? But that would be a waste of time. If you feel the feeling, people, you feel it, but you have to be action-oriented and you have to move forward and try to do something about it. Tony, you taught at Bergmar and you've seen this firsthand. You talk about how some of your students were like, well, you know, what did I get out of this experience? What, what, what does it mean for me? I, will just, I just want you to share what that has been like for you and how have your students managed it? And if you got on the board, what would you do about it? At, at Burkmar, because it's a Title I school, so you have a lot of kids in poverty, you have a diverse background, you've probably got about 35% Black, probably about 38 or 39 or 40% Hispanic, you've probably got about 10% Asian, and then you've got other in there somewhere. But Burkmar is a different kind of place than if you were in the north side of the county. So there's some level of economic segregation there, simply because you've got people who live there because it's either more affordable, it's where they lived, it's where they first came to, all kinds of reasons why people live there. My reason for going there is that it's a diverse community. It's close to my house. I live in the community. I'm in District 4. Um, and when I see the kids at Burkmar, they look a lot like my high school. And that's a difference because many of the teachers in any of the schools did not go to a school that was diverse. Uh, in my hometown, outside of Savannah, there was no escaping who we were. We all lived together. And when I look at that, I see some lessons that could be learned here in the metro area where I think about going back to my high school class reunions. It's not just all white people. It's white and black people there. It's people who've known each other for basically 40 years off and on. We, we remember those times being in high school and we were students. And when I tell the kids, in class, you know, the, the school isn't the building or the administration, it's the students. And they, they're shocked about that, that I would get, take that perspective. And what I'm saying is, it's the community that's there. And that if you compare the communities at Burkmar versus some of the other schools, some of the other schools have more money. Some of them have more money to put into athletics. They pay the coaches more. They, um, we're getting off topic here a little bit, but in athletics, they can buy them a truck. They can buy them things to get those coaches who are high-level coaches to come to those more. I mean, Gwinnett is an athletic powerhouse. A powerhouse. Kids, come, kids come to Gwinnett. They get, and I, don't, I shouldn't say this, but they get recruited to yes. Gwinnett by, directly and indirectly by the power of the county in order to get seen, to go to the next level in college athletics, all of those things, but there are inequities within the county because the schools in the Title I areas or the lower income areas, they don't have that extra cash to do those things that you're alluding to because many of those things that you see in those community areas in the northern parts of the county are the extra cash infusions that the parents can do. They have the money to pay the coach an extra X number of thousand dollars a year. They have booster clubs. They have things that they can do for their children. 
if you go to the band concert, the entire cafeteria will be full of people that have community support. Right. Many of the people at Berkmar, the parents, they have to work they all the work. time. They work two jobs. Many of them uh, don't have good language skills. The students don't either. So that's an inequity that we have there. Uh, you may have kids who are reading at lower levels at Berkmar, and you have to teach with that in mind to get the kids. And we are, we're all based on data and achievement. And you're trying to get a huge number of the students to pass to pass the test, to pass the standardized test. And that's some of the things that, that we face here now. And that's one of the things that I would try to change because we have too many of those. Right. The kids right. are stressed out. They have, my daughter, who graduated <clears throat> from Gwinnett County School, said when she was a senior, she said, Dad, you know how many standardized tests I had this year? And I go, I'm a teacher, but I just don't count because I don't want to know because I can't get through my day when I'm sitting here thinking about, oh, my gosh, we've got so many tests to do. She goes, 16. Oh. And I said, what do you mean 16? She goes, we've got the, the district assessments, the pre and post tests of those, which are basically used to measure the teachers. They're not measuring the students so much. Then you've got the standardized state tests, which are things like 11th grade language arts, used to be economics, uh, uh, some of the other big curricular areas to look at what scores are, and to measure schools with those. They're not really caring about the students themselves because they're, they're looking at, are you doing better? All this stuff is based on federal laws like No Child Left Behind that came out almost 20 years ago now. But we're still living those echoes yeah. of those things. We need to do some things to change that, to have less testing. Class sizes should be smaller. I mean, when I... When, my last assignment, I was in a trailer and I had 36 to 38 kids in my class. I don't know if people who are listening are familiar with trailers. They're made, for, I mean, people in high school are big people. It's right. They're not little, they're not little children. And you can get three, you can get nine rows of three desks. That's 27. And if you add more than that, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people in a trailer. And you've got others who have 30 in regular classrooms with 40 students. So the crowding, the Gwinnett paradigm of huge schools, 3,000 plus, yeah. we've got all kinds of things that go on. But in the areas where more money is prevalent, they can do things to mitigate some of those things. They can get extra teachers, more subs, they can do all those things. In a Title I school where I teach or I taught, you don't have that. So there's some inequities there in terms of funding. And I don't think it's a loss. I think that it's that people need to think about if we want the scores and we want to do, it's like my grandmother used to say, I don't think I should have to pay school tax because I don't have any kids in there. And I said to her when I was in college, grandma's for all the kids. And she goes, oh, I didn't realize that. You know, she didn't even think that way. It's we should be more community minded because if we uplift everybody, and help everybody do well, it does that thing to, you know, it goes in a circular way to get back to those things that the people in power on the board for years did, which was have qualified workers to get those companies and get those jobs in here. County growth, all it becomes a beneficial cycle rather than a detrimental one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tony hit the nail on the head with that. I really got to say it. The, um, the cycle, the circle of the dollar, the cycle in terms of economics, the cycle 
in terms of social impact. I was at a chamber meeting uh, several weeks back and one of our previous commissioners said that his major concern for where the county was going was crime, right? And I, I don't take this away from him, right? Um, with the extended stay hotels, the, uh, in, in, well, uh, and we have to be playing about this. I don't know who would aspire to be a critical thinker and thought that we were gonna go into a pandemic and eventually come out of it and see a decrease or stability in terms of criminal activity. That makes no sense. It was going to, it's what happened in Atlanta. It, it's happening all over. But speaking to your circle in the cycle, right? We're coming out of this. Um, folks discount the fact that a lot of criminal activity is based upon need. And again, fear, fear is such a motivating factor. The fear that gets magnified because of a lack and a desire to want to live and thrive forces you to do things that perhaps you would not otherwise do. And for children, they see it, they emulate it. And, you know, having volunteered in communities for almost for over two decades, I just can't say it strongly enough. Folks who are privileged or just don't see it refuse to acknowledge the fact that a lot of these kids, they behave this way because of what they're exposed to in their lack of need, their lack of sufficiency. Poverty creates crime. Poverty creates crime. A lack creates crime. If you will pay your tax dollars and not fund the majority of that to a school that you particularly want and want to send a voucher to because you miss out on the fact that you're taking money from that school over there, what do you think is going to happen to those kids that are stuck in that school? And if we all live here together, it's like, it's like, it's like you know, I equate it to the same thing that I think a lot of the folks who are part of the separate Buckhead movement in Atlanta think too that, you know, you can hire maybe 10 to 15 new police officers and when you're a city, this invisible wall is gonna come up that's gonna prevent crime from happening at Lenox Square Mall. That's not gonna happen. As a matter of fact, you may make yourself a juicier target. Now you may have a few more cops to run around and chase people, but that is not going to stop the thing. What stops the thing is what you just said, giving people the means to close some of these gaps. If a, if a child and his parents aren't worrying about where the next meal is going to come from, which is not necessarily tied to the cycle of money that is flowing through the school, but is adjacent, it is tangent. You're an economics professor, all of these ties, they bind. These things matter then if the child, and right now I see this when I volunteer, right? The child is coming to the school, they get fed. A lot of folks understand it, they get fed, but also, you know, they get this education and this uplift. If we could get them away from all of the standardized testing, we always hear that they love coming to the school to bond, to commute, to discuss. You know, I happen to love economics and I didn't necessarily love it as much when I was first introduced to it in school. But to your point, when I realized that economics wasn't about sitting around and postulating and theorizing on situations with just numbers, but that there are people tied to those numbers and it expresses in terms and words the dynamics of what's happening when we spend money or we don't, then all of a sudden it just exploded in the life for me. I can't imagine how that's really happened for so many kids that have made their way through Bergmar. Again, really outstanding school 
folks just don't know and don't realize yet all of the amazing things that teachers like yourself have, have done, you know, to pour into these kids so that they don't go to what we call the school to prison pipeline. And they start to, you, you know, in time you realize this criminal activity that we're concerned about, right? Because they didn't get a trade. They didn't go to college. They thought that, you know, no one really explained to them that I really can't thrive off of $9 an hour, but also I'm going to hustle over here in this trap or this corner and that'll supplement my income. And I guess what, you know, I'll sell baggies till I'm 65. Um, these things are irrational, but, you know, if no one is there to show them the way, there's no safety net, no, no entitlement net, right? Then this is what happens. So for those who, I, I'll just say it like this, right? And, and again, you spoke to it. I, I live over here and to the folks that live around me, I, I'll make it real plain. If we funnel not just a bit of our money, but our means and our time towards filling those gaps that those Title I schools experience, then this fear will just not be realized. It won't because again, like you said, that's the sense of community. You know, I might not have a child in school, I do, but the children that are in school will be coming out with the needs and the means required in order to be a productive member of society. I volunteer right now with a portrait of what a Gwinnett student looks like, a program that Dr. Watts is pushing and we're having outstanding conversations. These, these, these things are happening and we need to continue to support and, and, and expand on those things, you know? But let me stop because I wanna to go to, to, the, to the next question. And, and Tony, you can, you, can, you can easily lean in. Like I said, we just, We'll do conversations on the edge just Tony. You can go, Derek, shut up. You're talking too much. <laughs> but I, I want to hit a harder question now. Um, because again, I, I want to go back to the area in which you're running, District 4. I believe that's almost 64, 65% people of color. Um, we got to throw the question on the table. And it stems directly from this, this need to inject equity into the conversation. I'm first going to assume you wouldn't run if you didn't think you could win. But in a district that's 65% people of color, the question will come up. You're trying to step into a space behind a black man, even one you endorsed. I believe at one point you had a, an event for him in your home. Um, so it, it, there, there's no question where your loyalties lie, so to speak, even though I'm not fond of putting loyalty in the conversation when it comes down to doing the right kind of politics, statescraft. Um, you think you can win, but what do you say to someone who says, well, you're a white male? Because, you know, white man, oh, my God. Uh, and you're trying to step into this space. What, you know, it, there's so many facets to that. But right off the cuff, Tony, what do you say to the folks in District 4 that you're a white man, you're a teacher, but you're going to step into the space and you can do what's right? I think that when people assume that, it kind of, it kind of works both ways. So we're looking at that and going, well, get to know me, uh, get to know what I've done, get to know where I've been. Uh, I've worked in schools. I've, I've got a long history of working for Everton Blair and to be able to uh, change the makeup of the board. And that was really what we were trying to do. When, as you said, when he came to my house over four years ago, I introduced him. I had people from school there. I had people from the neighborhood there. 
we walked the neighborhoods. <clears throat> Everton did not. He was doing something else, but we we worked our neighborhood in order to, and, and many people, and I'll say this, at that time, most of the people in my neighborhood were white, but they voted for Everton Blair because he was a new face. There is that idea. So for me, as being uh, from my background, shall we say, and my appearance, people make judgments on that. Mm -hmm. People make judgments, white people make judgments, and we have to know the reality that people tend to vote for people who they assume are like themselves and understand their perspective. My idea is to communicate with people as much as possible where I've been from school, a school like Barkmar. The fact that I grew up in uh, a school in high school that was 50% white, 50% black, uh, I have a long history of thinking about these issues. When I was in college, and I don't want to say the date because it will make me seem, okay, it was 1980, a uh, <laughs> friend on my dorm hall, and this shows you how in those times Atlanta was so divided. I had a friend or a guy from down the hall ask me, Tony, there's a, there's a black guy in my class, and I, I'm sitting there studying, and I look up over my book, and I go, so what? You know, what's the deal? Well, you went to a, a, a high school with black people, and I said, yeah, so what do you want? And he goes, what do I say to him? And I said, you talk to him like anybody else. I said, what's wrong with you? And he goes, well, he sits right next to me, and I don't know what to say to him. This kid came from Cobb County. You've got to remember that at that time in the 80s, Atlanta was a very much more segregated. They were, you know, white flight, suburbanization. So these kids who came from there, they had no idea. So for me, the idea is communicate to people if they, that there might be something more with me uh, than just the appearance. There's some work that's been done over the years. You know, I've taught at Bert, I taught at Burkmar for, you know, 18 years. And the student body there and the kids would ask me, Mr. Sellers, you know, we're not, uh, we're not dumb. We're just lazy. We just don't want to do the work. And I said, yeah, you're just like we were in high school. And they go, what? And I said, yeah. And I tell them about my high school and they, they almost can't believe it. Yeah. Because they have ideas in their mind. All of us have paradigms that we think have to be. So for me, I'm working to overcome those paradigms so that people can look at me and see me as a legitimate choice uh, for doing things for the whole community. I think that's a, a fear that this person, because he doesn't look like me, he won't have the correct mindset. You don't teach at a Title I school for that kind of time. and hate people of color or not work to understand other people. Um, I, I don't understand that, but I understand people and that people we're taught, you know, the fight or flight thing. If you're like me, you're good. If you're not, then you're bad, but you've got to get beyond that. Right. And that's what I'm trying to do with my campaign is to at least educate people that I've put in the work there for many years uh, that I, understand or can learn the issues and problems of the district. I, I, I know a lot of them firsthand. You alluded to crime and those choices that, that young people have. And a lot of it is when you're 
young, that's when crime happens. 18 to 24 are the prime years for that. And I was at a meeting the other day where people were running for judges. Even the criminal justice system here in Gwinnett is now moving away from the harsh discipline because number one, it costs less. Number two, we don't have any, we don't have any room to throw people away. They're doing diversion programs to get people back on the, the cycle of life rather than if putting them in an adjudicated position, having them in court when they're when they're they have a case coming up, they can't progress in life. They can't go to school. They can't get a student loan. They can't do all of those things. But as you alluded to a few minutes ago, sometimes in poverty areas, the choice to make the most money is criminal activity. That's right. So we've had some of the uh, school resource officers years ago, Rolando Jimenez, who was very good at Burkmar. He gave us trainings and he told us how much people can make if they go into criminal or gang activity versus going into the legitimate world. I, many people may not know this, but it's way over $100,000 a year that someone can make if they move up in those levels of criminal activity. I would not do that, but some young people see that as a legitimate choice because it's harder for them to move up through school or training, we need to do more of that. One of the things that I believe in is vocational instruction. And there's some of the things that we could do better in Gwinnett. In fact, the things that they've done, the academy model, which have been concentrated in low income and Title I schools, many of the other schools don't have that. They're more seen as, as we send our kids to college. But I believe that the academy model is vocational light that it's not that we need more in real vocational instruction and we can take lessons from other counties. Rockdale County has this thing called Rockdale Career Academy. It is mind blowing. It's a, it's a four year school that kids go into and test into in ninth grade and they can come out graduated fully certified for a career. They don't have to go to tech school after high school if they do everything they need to do at that school. It's community based. The jobs there are training them for jobs, and it's community supported. We could do something like that here in Gwinnett. There's so much that we could do to not have that school-to-prison pipeline, not throwing people away, not over-disciplining them. Because if the and schools are kind of like this, they're always behind the times in terms because they're public, publicly funded. They can't afford to jump ahead and do a lot of these innovative things because it's tax dollars. They don't want to make mistakes, but there are certain things that we supported over time. And I think that those things that have been vocational instruction, because jobs in those areas are growing. We don't have as many people who need to go to college in the future. We need career people and career training because I don't know if you know this, but if you come out and you're a welder, you can make $60,000 a year at the beginning and go up from there. I mean, if you're aware of that, and, and many families don't understand if you're a welder and you have your own business or if you're a plumber and have your own business, you can make way over $100,000 a year with the training. I have a friend who's at Burkmar. His family's from Bosnia. He has a friend here from Bosnia. He was an engineer in Bosnia. And he asked me, have, you, have I told you this story? And I go, no. And he goes, his friend he asked him, why don't you go back and be an engineer here in America? And he said, $180,000, that's why. And he goes, 
what? What do you mean? And he said, well, when someone calls me to go fix a plumbing problem, I hit the timer on my phone and I'm charging. And he goes, I make that because of my high skill level and I'm good at it in my own business. I built my clientele. And he goes, I would never go back to be an engineer. So America's full of opportunities, but you've got to get on that track to get to those opportunities. And I think that our students just need to be shown the way a little bit more, just a little. Just a little. Tony, you hit the nail on the head with that one. I, I can't say that. There's nothing I can say to take away from that. That, that, that. That's the bottom line. And on one of my previous episodes, I had a couple of gentlemen who happened to be multimillionaires here in the Atlanta area. And one of them didn't go to college. And he's an electrician. He's an electrician. And he parlayed that into a business. And, and to your point, it's just uh, if a person in high school can see someone on a bill, and, and this is how we describe the environment, and I've done this before when I when I speak to children, you know, um, in your neighborhood, there may be a billboard that says, you know, uh, don't get an abortion, a life is, is sacred. Um, and there may be, uh, when you go to the bus stop, a couple of uh, posters of local, of, of rappers, you know, and then there's the, the, the requisite shoe sign. And then on the corner, that's the guy that you knew from the ninth grade who no longer goes to school, but he's slanging. On and down the way to the left, you know, you, you, everyone says don't go up that way unless you know what you want to get because there's a trap house up there, and there's an industry being run out of that house, and it's designed to get people high. And to be real clear, and then I would tell the kids this: the guys who are doing the bagging and and, and slanging it. They make about the same amount of money as you would make dropping fries at McDonald's. The guy that's not slinging it, that runs the enterprise, that's the guy that's making over six figures. Oh, by the way, he's a dangerous fella. You know, um, don't know if he's going to make it to 35. And he may bring you along with him, either to a concrete facility where you get three, uh, three squares, hot cot, or you may make your way out of living in total. These are the things that you see on your way to school and back. To your point, if we could just switch the paradigm a little, take the billboard down and put something better up, you know, um, like a guy with a wrench in his hand that says, you know, I'm a plumber and you can be a plumber too. Because to your point, I've, I've known people at friends, I'm in, I'm in corporate America and, you know, the plumber, the guy, he's a millionaire. He makes more money than I do by an order of magnitude. You know, there are these opportunities that are old, tried and true from a vocational standpoint in these new ones that are coming up in the mid that we haven't even really sussed out yet. They don't have a lot of flesh on them but they're highly technical. They're tied to devices and systems and processes that are maturing that you won't need a degree for. I came up as a software developer and I wrote an article years ago that said this very well may be the next blue collar. And I, I noted this because I, at the time I was reading, and I'm a voracious reader, and I was just reading about you know Ford and you know what, what, what Henry was doing with the assembly line. And I just likened it to how we were developing software as we were trying to mature the process, what we call the software development life cycle at the time. It was a 
waterfall processes, but it was just like making a car, right? You know, we would put it through its paces, we would add modules, we would test, we would go through these cycles, and then we send the software off the assembly line, we call it putting it in production and how synonymous. And off it went to be used by, um, you know, our customers. Same thing. And one day, you know, we turned around and realized you don't need a college degree to do this. You know, you, you can, in fact, you can learn the code in a couple of months. Your level of proficiency will go up the more you use it. But these are those areas where, like you said, we can just showcase a little bit and give the kids an opportunity and the outcomes, I, I don't have to guess on this, it's a fact. They will be drastically different, drastically. You snap the school to prison pipeline in half by showing these kids that this is how you can eat. And then, and then of course, that these things are for them too, because a lot of them, quite simply, especially when I was talking about software development, that's not for me. You know, I'm a, I'm a little black kid from the hood. I don't, I can't, I can play a video game, but I'm not, that we can't make those. Why not? Why not? It's for you too. Why don't you test it first? Get a taste and see if you can lean a little into what makes you uncomfortable about how you look and where you come from to go ahead and say, this too is where I belong. Policies need to look like that, right? We have a real need for kids to be able to, <clears throat> to look at it and to be able to sample things, to be able to see what it is that, that they might want to do. And there's some barriers there to going into the technical education. A lot of the kids have to be passing all of their classes in 11th grade to go to Maxwell High School of Technology. I did special ed for several years. The students are in special ed, whether it's behavioral or cognitive or whatever, if they're behind, they can't go. Right. There's a barrier. You, you cannot go there, so you have to be passing your classes. So if you're not a good student, there's no back channel way to get there. If you see it as something, well, I don't want to do that. That doesn't interest me. Uh, there needs to be ways for them to pique their interest. We need to do things like you said. If you think that, as we alluded to before, that doesn't look like me. I don't look like the people in this district. We've got to break through some of that stuff because if they can see it as a legitimate thing, hey, you might like it if you tried it, you know, and that's a, a hard thing for people to do, but they need to have those opportunities to do it and to see that's legitimate. Uh, we're talking about the uh, school to prison pipeline. They see that economically as a legitimate choice because it's instant money versus you know, I can move up in this enterprise. If I want to go to college, man, that's a lot of work. Yeah. I don't think I can do that. And some of it is their mental paradigm. They look at it and go, uh, that's not for me. I don't have the money. I don't act, have access to loans. My parents can't do it. My parents can't sign for it. They own nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in poverty, you may have a car, a little bit of things in your house, but you don't own where you live. You're renting. You don't have those things that allow you to get student loans and have access to those things that can help your kids move up. So my parents were like that. They had a house. And I can remember when I went to the bank with my mother, she looked at me across the table and she said, Tony, we're signing a house up for this loan to help you as collateral. If you don't pay this back, they will take our house. And all I could think of was, 
yes, ma'am, I'll pay it. I'll, I promise you I will. But that's hard when you're 18. That's right. But it was hard for my mom because that was a risk too, because I needed the student loan. There are people out there who are, and this was way before things like the lottery funded education and uh, scholarships that kids can do, the HOPE scholarship and things like that. But you have to have the grades to get HOPE scholarship. So, and I tell kids in my class, you can, you can get your HOPE back if you go to Gwinnett College here locally and get your grades up. There are all kinds of pathways that you can do to get there. But for some of them, it's what's inside their head. They see it as so insurmountable. That's not, like you said, that's not for someone like me. That's right. But they have to have some ability. We need to help them with that. And I tried to do it in the classroom to say, well, here's a, an alternate pathway of a way that you can do it. And some of the kids would do that. I had a girl several years ago. She came back to my class and she came at six period and she goes, I had to come and see you. And I said, well, why are you here? And she goes, you were the only one that held me accountable. And I said, what do you mean? And she was standing in front of the whole class at like right about the time to go out to school. And she goes, you never let me slide on my, uh, my assignments, deadlines, those types of things. And I said, well, why are you telling me this? And she goes, well, I'm at Georgia Tech now. And I said, how did you do that? You slept in my class. And I said, I thought you hated econ. And, and I said, you must have loved that, that math and science stuff. She goes, well, I hate to admit it, but I do. Mm. She was an African-American young lady. And I said in front of the class, what are you studying? And she goes, I'm studying petroleum engineering. And I said, are you making grades? She goes, yeah, I'm making A's and B's. And I said, oh my gosh, honey, you're going to get on the golden escalator. This was before we had all the oil crises. It was four, four or five years ago. And she goes, yeah, Mr. Sellers, they took us to Houston uh, last month. And in the summer, they're taking us to Dubai. Wow. And I said, if you go there, I said, do you know why they're doing that? And she goes, yeah, they want us to meet the people at the big companies. I said, they want you to go and talk to Royal Dutch Shell and some of these other big oil companies that work over there and that you might take a job with them. And I was saying this in front of the class as she was standing in the door and the kids in class, their mouths were open. Yes. Because they couldn't believe that this girl came from Burkmar and did this. Plus she was a sleeper in my class. And I asked her that and she goes, Mr. Sellers, do you remember the story that I told you? My mom and I had to work at night. We worked at the old folks home around the corner. And I said, now I remember. I'm sorry. I didn't think about that. She goes, that's why I was sleeping some. That's the piece. Yep. So we have to understand these kids and know where they come from and to know they got some potential and you may not even know it. Exactly. So if we can unlock that, you don't know who you're teaching. You don't know who you're standing in front of. You don't know what they might be able to do, but they need the chance and the opportunity. And the more of those things we can throw out there, the more they might take advantage of them. They will aggregate. Tony, again, and, and like I, we said before the show started, um, we, we've covered some of the same ground with Bergmar. I love Bergmar because there are so many stories just like that. I can still recall when my wife came home and told me 
that a naval officer showed up in her classroom out of nowhere, very buttoned up and an official and, and real like um, scary, she said. But he was coming to interview her because one of her students was getting ready to go into the nuclear engineering submarine program. And there was an extremely high level of rigor that this kid would have to satisfy in order to get into that program. But that's just one story of many. And so many of them have that same background that you called out. Well, I have to work when I leave school and I still want to try to do a sport too. Also want to make A's and B's and I'm trying to do this other thing. And they're those kids. And then you've got those kids, like you said, that they're in the mix. They're thinking about not coming to school again, period. But there is an opportunity for them if like you said, we just show them a little bit, give them a taste, something will click. And like a key, it'll unlock. And the opportunity is there. And I also wanna make sure that folks recognize this as we're talking about what you're running for and in, in, in all the possibilities. In every county across this country, the same paradigm exists. There are these areas where these kids aren't getting enough funding. And we always talk about how there's not enough money. Well. I, I want folks to start looking at this with a critical thinker's eye and considering it differently, because I will tell you without equivocation, the money is there. It's just not going to come from the parents, at least not to a large degree without aggregating it appropriately. But that money has to be combined with the money that flows through or around their neighborhoods for whatever reason. I live in Gwinnett County. You live in Gwinnett County. This is a very, very well-funded county. There's a ton of money that goes through this place. Some of it, it's, it, the amounts are ridiculous. They are, and they go to build this thing and they go into build that thing. And we get these special local options, sales tax to do this, that, the other, and the third. And it won't take that much of it to send it directly to an exposure program because it's the stories that matter. And Tony, you've taken the time to share your stories with us today. This, this has been very, very, uh, it's been awesome, in, informing. It's been great. I, I, you've etched the edges with us. And those are the things that folks have to know because, right, the election is May 24th. You ain't got a lot of time. But I do know a lot of folks didn't know your story. You know, I didn't know your background along those lines, where you come from and where you've been and, and where you're trying to go and why. And that's what always has to happen. I tell folks all the time that first off, you got to exercise the franchise. But each person you decide to vote for, you can't just vote willy-nilly. It's not a popularity contest. This is not the, the picking who's going to be on whose team at school. It's way too important. Now, you may not have a whole lot of time to do your research, but you must do some to try and find out if the candidate that's on the ballot is good for you, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation. And that's how you need to exercise the franchise appropriately. Go to the website, go to wherever they have their information, find the person and talk to them and find out what it is they think, what they believe, whether you, you guys have congruency and that they can earn your vote. And they have to keep earning it too. That's the other piece, right? You know, you don't get in office and just rest on your laurels. I get to hold you accountable. That's how the process is supposed to work. Now we're coming up on time. This has been a great conversation, but I, I do, I, I got one more question if you don't mind, because we've been going so far and so fast that we left the one thing out and then I want to give you the last word, Tony. So your thoughts on this CRT was unfortunately humorous, but not so much 
at the last board meeting when the lady got up and she said this evil CRCT thing. And I, of course, I think she was just conflating and confusing that with the standardized test. But her, her hate for CRT was just so great. And she just didn't understand what CRT was. And she, she had no idea. What are your thoughts around that? Of course, we know it's not in Gwinnett County Schools, but still, it's a thing. And since you're running for office, you're going to have to address it. This idea of critical race theory is emblematic of what it is kind of the dark side of what I'm trying to do in the campaign, which is to use social media for good thing, which is having my website up, uh, tweeting certain things about me showing me as a, a regular guy and showing me as my background and my teaching, a lot of people who are connected to, let's say, darker information, things that are, you know, they, they believe what they've been told about it, about replacement, or this critical race theory is a bad thing. It's going to poison people's minds. The, they don't understand that it's really more about expanding people's minds and knowing what really happened in history. It's not about making people feel bad. Not to mention the fact, as you said at the beginning, it's not taught in Gwinnett County Public Schools. Um, we do have to teach things like the civil rights movement and other things having to do with African-American history and slavery. And, and I tell the kids in class, there's a lot that we don't talk about in U.S. history. That big, giant, 900-page book doesn't talk about certain people's experience. And when you talk about critical race theory, and I'll throw the book bans and other things in there as well, it's like they're trying to control, and I saw this the other day, they're trying to control the origin story about what happened. And when you look at it, We've always tried to, at Berkmar, bring in other types of readings, like uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, because it talks about poor white people, black people, Latino people, what happened to the, the regular people out there in history. And so much of what we talk about is, you know, the hero, the, 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 the idea of political history. And even in economics class, I go, you know, we don't talk about economic history and the fact that the country was founded to make money. You know, that's what we came here for. We had religious freedom and all that stuff, but we talk about it in little bits here and there, but they don't really concentrate on it because it doesn't go along with the narrative of America being great and wanting to be, you know, a, a singular power constitution, freedom for all, equality, equity. That's a creed that we haven't lived up to, but we're trying to get there. Yeah. Um, but I look at all of these things and people, like we talked about at the beginning of this, people are afraid. They've been told things that are not true. We don't teach that stuff. We do have to grapple with some hard issues. Even some of my African-American kids, they don't like some of the things we talk about, about the civil rights movement. Because when you talk about people getting murdered and buried in uh, a lake dam in Mississippi, or they show people getting hosed and dogs attacked on them, they don't like looking at that because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for everybody. It's uncomfortable for me. I don't even remember any of that stuff. I was a, I was a little child 
when some of that stuff was happening in the 60s. And I look at it now as an adult and it's uncomfortable, but we have to talk about some of those things. But critical race theory, no, it's not an issue because it's not taught. Book bans and uh, not allowing kids to read certain things, I got a real problem with that because it should be, parents should be able to decide certain things, but it shouldn't mean censorship for everybody. You know, the, we should have texts that kids read widely. That's, that's another thing. Literacy. If we don't encourage them to read, how are they going to know their world? If they're behind on reading when they come to me, and I'll say this, at, at the, the positive of Berkmar, the culture, the people, but the reading levels aren't where they need to be. I've had kids who are two or three grades behind, and when they have to confront the high-level textbook materials or other materials that we're grappling with, whether it's economics or U.S. history, sometimes they struggle. So we need to give them those tools that they can use to go out and do those things and not muddy the waters, as people say, with things like critical race theory, banning books and things like that, because we're not trying to rewire people to take away their culture, whether they're white or black. We're trying to say, here it is. What do you think about it? And the kids would always ask me, Mr. Sellers, what's your opinion about this? And I go, no, no, we have to figure out what you think, because that's really what we're here for. I know what I think. You tell me what you think. And oftentimes they would go, Mr. Sellers, did the United States ever do anything right or good or nice when we were, you know, we talk about manifest destiny and going west and how the Indians, the American Indians were taking advantage of the Mexican war, how, you know, a big country like the United States had a war with Mexico as a tune-up to the Civil War, the Trail of Tears and all these things. And they asked, did we ever do anything right? And I go, yes, we did a lot right. We did some things wrong, too. Uh, we're trying to live up to that. And I think going back to that very beginning of our conversation, there's a lot of fear out there. And people think that these things are bad. They've been told they're bad even though they don't really exist. For me, I want kids to read as much as they can, read widely, know some stuff, so that when you come out at the end of the process, you can be an educated citizen and you can make your own decisions. That's why I think that it's, it's good to talk about those things because it gets back to our creed, our ideas, and, and who we are. Don't be afraid of it. Just don't be swayed by it. Outstanding. Outstanding, Tony. I, I can't think of a better way to close out our conversation edges have been edged thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today are there any final words you'd like to share of course you got to tell folks your information too let's not lose that yes and i'm if, if you want to find information about me you can uh go to sellersforgwinnett.com you can find information on me there uh I'm on Facebook as well as Tony Sellers and Sellers for Gwinnett um, because the campaign is so short and we're going to be voting, early voting starts on May 2nd and the actual election day is May 24th. We don't have a lot of time. So I'm telling people that this is really kind of a, uh, a garage band, guerrilla campaign, you know, social media campaign. We're trying to get out there, but we don't have a lot of time to do those traditional things. And I'm, going out and meeting people and the more opportunities out there to meet people, the better and uh, learn about me if you can. And uh, 
I'd appreciate it if you could vote for me. That would be a fantastic thing because I want to be there and be an agent of change. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Tony. Have a good one. Thanks. A great conversation with candidate for Gwinnett County Board of Education, Tony Sellers. A great conversation indeed. Edges were etched. We understand that what is happening in Gwinnett is happening all over the country. School boards and school policies are the new wedge issue. And let's be clear, there are those perfectly willing to take advantage of the situation when they know better, when they should be better. Well, it is what it is, right? However, in the face of it, we must act. We thank Tony for talking about a better way for acknowledging truths, not alternative facts, and committing himself to the task of stepping out and stepping up. Thanks, Tony. And of course, we have to thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it, so please like and subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at EtchTheEdges, and don't forget to visit our website at EtchTheEdges.com. Check us out. Join the movement. Express your commitment to the cause cause for a better America, a better world, where we all can stand together at the mountaintop. Do it for America. Indeed, do it for a better world. Be good to yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time.